0: Are in Second Samuel, starting in chapter 10, we, uh, before we get into, uh, David and Bathsheba, we, chapter 10 kind of sets it up. Plus, it, it, there's a connection to what we saw last week, or last time with Mephibosheth. I'll bring out in a moment. Uh, you remember hopefully David and Fibosheth, uh, how they illustrate the sovereign saving grace of God and saving yet in the undeserving sinner based on a previous covenant with the Son, previous covenant with David and Jonathan. Uh saw that Ephibosheth was powerless to come to David, be lame. Uh, but David sent his servant, that is, uh Ziba, to bring him unto himself. And so, you know, it's just so obvious that there's a connection there with. Our own situation and regeneration and so forth. Not only does he not condemn him, remember Mephibosheth was the, uh, grandson of the rebellious line of King Saul, but he, uh, uh, brings him into his table to eat twice daily. He supplies all he needs, so just a perfect picture of him who got It's not just as well, I'm not going to send you to hell, but we, we are joint heirs by God. to become sons of God. So the attitude is one of seeing himself as undeserving and as David's In so the very last thing he saw in that chapter right was uh, he, he referring to himself as a dead dog. So just uh, uh, or no, he, he does refer to himself as a dead dog but the, the, uh, the narrator uh, says that he was lame in both feet just a reminder uh of but well, to come to chapter 10, we uh, might ask ourselves, as we do so often, every, so often, right? why is this here? In this narrative, uh, David defeats Ammon and Syria. Let, let's just uh, stand and read uh, some of our texts today. Give us a little idea of what's going on here. We'll read a little bit in chapter 10, and then we'll read some in chapter 9. 2 Samuel 10 After this, the king of the Ammonites. <laughs> Um, he died I a whole lot, so here a photo and Unan, uh, Hanan, Hanan, his son reigned in his place and David said I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash now if you remember his father Nahash was the one who uh was going to uh poke out one eye of all the men in Jabesh-Gilead under Saul's reign uh, in order to kind of humiliate them and subserviate them. And Saul came to the rescue. So that's, these are the Ammonites. There are some of the wickedest people uh, in this area. And uh, so this is who we're dealing with. But David, when they have died, you know, tries to make overtures of peace, right? So David sent his servants to console him concerning the Ammonites, and to Hanan their lord. Now do you think, because David, excuse me, skipped a little bit here. Let's, get Let's start reading verse 2 again, I skipped a little bit. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him. And just again, while Nahash and Saul had problems, because Saul was David's enemy in a sense, then uh, if they became friends, that's why uh, David didn't really have a problem with Ahash as such. And so uh, David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their Lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. And then let's go over to chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabba But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she said, and told David, I am pregnant. They conceived in there today and uh, next week Lord will will deal more with the aftermath of all this. So as we come to chapter 10 and, and why is this here, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it points back to chapter 9 as well as it sets the stage for the next couple of chapters. Uh, because it is during these battles, because Nahash, or excuse me, Hanan, in his rejection of David's overtures, uh, David sends Joab to basically destroy him. They call the Syrians to help him. Uh, Joab and his brother, um, uh, I don't search the name, I want to say the wrong one, Abishai, uh, defeat them and destroy them. But there's, a uh, kind of on if they kind of if there's a great defeat but there's ongoing battles, you might say clean up battles. And so it's during these this either the 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 early uh, battle or the uh, subsequent battles where David is at home and he has sent Joab out to do this cleanup work in some way or to to fight the series it sets up the stage then of what happens with David and Bathsheba. But it also looks, as I said, back to Mephibosheth Notice how both chapters, that is chapter uh, 9 and 10, begin with David looking to show mercy to somebody, right? He's looking to show mercy to Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. But down in chapter 9, he's, he's willing to show mercy and forgiveness to someone who really doesn't deserve it here to Hayden, right? So there, you've got two a uh, very similar situation, But there's a big difference, and that is the way it is received. Mephibosheth was based on a previous covenant. Hanan's uh, was not. And so I would say in a sense that Mephibosheth represents the elect who, uh, remember David sent a servant to bring Mephibosheth to him. would, I think, represents the non-elect, the world, where we present the gospel, we tell the people of salvation through Christ Jesus, but there is no inward work to change their hearts. And so what do they do? They they reject it. They have no use for God's overtures of peace. So one is going to be accepted, but the other will not be. Both of these men deserve wrath rather than mercy. Um, in fact not only was we think about as I told you Nahash what he did with poking out wanting to poke out the right eye of the men, uh in Amos 1.13, for instance, we learn a little bit more about the Ammonites. As the Lord says, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So he doesn't even list the other three, and why? Because what could be worse than that? This is the kind of people they were. Of course, they also sacrificed their children, to their gods, and so forth. So, uh, this is the kind of people that we're dealing with. And yet, David is quite gracious to extend, in, extend terms of peace to him. But Hanan sees it as an affront to his rule due to some bad uh, counsel. So, Hanan's attitude is worked out on the ambassadors who are sent to relay the offer of peace, and they mistreat them uh, in place of David, right? And they cut off half their beard, you know, which was a disgrace to, to the, certainly to the Jews and the Jewish men at that time. And to make matters worse, they, he cuts off their garments halfway, so they're basically walking around, uh, exposed to some degree. And so, uh, David tells them to we'll, we'll wait over here, because obviously they could be close quickly, but their beards would not, it would take a while to go back. And so David puts them off there in isolation until so that, uh, they grew back. And so, as you read this, you're thinking, what an inappropriate and illogical response, right? Well, here, uh, David, who is clearly uh, militarily doing very well, offers peace, and you uh, deny and say no, and you really are in no position to say no. I was reading and perhaps, uh, some of you know the story, uh, Lefty Gomez, who was a, a left-handed pitcher for the Yankees for a long time ago, 30s I think. And, uh, they were playing a game and it was the ninth inning and the bases were loaded. And he called the pitcher out, the, the catcher out to talk to him. And the catcher assumed that, um, well, we gotta talk about the strategy of the next match. And, uh, Gomez asked him, when he gets out there, asked the picture, do you have any extra bird dogs at your farm back in Arkansas? And the guy says, well, where do you want to know that? From? He said, well, so-and-so needs some, and he wanted me to ask you the next time I thought about it, and I just thought about it. So, I thought, well that, what a inappropriate uh, time to deal with that, right? And so, this is what we got here, we got, it, it makes no sense if you think about this as a respect of the gospel call you've got the Lord God Almighty who created you who holds your future in, in his hand who has provided his son to forgive you and the world rejects it you want no part of it it's inappropriate and of course justly this brings David's wrath and it just in, intensifies the hostilities on the other side, so that the ambassadors, if you think about it, what happened, uh, in Acts, we're going at this uh, here in Acts 24, 25, put through the mouth of your father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And it was in this context that we, that they turned their attention away from God and the Lord who sits on the throne who was out of their reach to the church. To don't let them get their hands off. And that's what these people do. They, they set his, uh, uh, wrath against the ambassadors. Just like has been happening to the church ever since. Because they not only take the message, but they work that patron out on the messengers because they can't get it at the king. And so, I uh, just, a, a very, I think this chapter just totally off- gives us a totally opposite look at, uh, the gospel, the message of peace, uh, given to us uh, by uh, the Lord. We see that again in text. And so, um one more thing here in this chapter, chapter 10, and that's in verses 11 and following, where uh, the Syrians, who were not certainly the superpower that they later would be, uh, as they became they could be the Assyrians, but uh, they were brought down to help and fight David, and uh, they are utterly defeated. But in, chapter, in verse 11, notice here Joab, and you know, they're, they're, again, well, was Joab a believer? Yeah, who knows? It's the Old Testament. It's not always easy to tell. And everyone's going to disagree with each other. I, again, Joab does not seem to be a believer. He's a mess, so now, But he obviously does some good things. And here's one of the good things, where he says, uh, if the Syrians are too strong for me, because uh, the, uh, he talked to his brother because they, they had split up in the Syrians, coming from one side and the Ammonites from another. So he tells his brother, Abishai, if they're too strong for me, then you will help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, you've got a whole group of people, of theologians in one sense that tend to always see all these characters as examples of Christians and believers themselves. The covenant theologians tend to do that because they they see the church, the, the Old Testament Israel, as just the Old Testament church, and we're the New Testament church, and, and that's, that's kind of how it is. So, uh, you've got some of these who say, okay, Joab is a Christian, and, uh, but this is not a, and then others at least would say, well, Joab Praise a phrase of prayer, but he ruins it. It's not really a prayer of faith because he says if maybe the Lord will uh deliver it. maybe he won't. So and I think you know maybe those who would tend to think like this would be uh like the health and wealth gospel of people, the name it claim it, where you've got to if you if you have true faith, you just claim it and you and you can't doubt because if you doubt. Not faith and moral moral, 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 and so forth. So here, this is not a prayer of faith. They would say, and I would just disagree with this again. My the issue is not well, was he a Christian? Was he a believer or not? Is is this because that's neither here nor there. But for us, is this an appropriate way to pray? See, because Jesus tells us to pray, "If it be thy will." And there are those who say, oh no, you can't say if, because as soon as you say if it's your will, uh, it, you're, you're, you're throwing doubt into the world. And, and I, I think that's a, not a very uh, healthy way to look at things. So I wanted to uh, just read something Calvin said concerning this. And again, Calvin was you know, basically a covenant theologian, uh, and so he might have a higher view of Joab, but I don't think that's really the issue. He says... If someone still claims that Joab did not show that he trusted in God that he was not thoroughly assured of the promises of the law the reply to that is that God does not give particular promises about this or that to his children in other words he's saying rightly that uh, we don't know God's will and everything so we can't pray like we know God's will and everything we certainly have this point which should firmly persuade us that God will never abandon us and that in the end, he will show that our hope in him was <coughs> <coughs> so not in vain, so that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon his mercy and truth. So he says what God has revealed to us is that no matter how it ends, how, no matter how he answers, he has not abandoned us. Even if he says no, right, then we have confidence to that. Nevertheless, we must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, it is not that we are assured that he will send us a good harvest or a good vintage. We should leave that in his hands and patiently wait, await what pleases him. When we have illness, we must rest well assured that he has not forgotten us and that we have such access to him that, in the end, we will feel that he has looked upon us in pity. Again, the the point is before. Regardless of what the answer is, the promise of God should be fully sufficient in regards to that. However, when we would like to have the world, the word, that today or tomorrow he will restore our health, we do not know. We're even in doubt of living and dying. And uh, and so we see that Joab's uncertainty was, was not, again, a lack of faith. Again, I'm not concerned with whether what he was going on in his mind. My concern is how do we as Christians pray? For we can certainly doubt, although we embrace the promises of God and hold them as absolutely certain and infallible. What we doubt are the things which are not clear to us. That is how He wants us to remain in suspense about many things and to leave it all to a secret counsel and his providence. So again I thought that's I mean it's kind of basic but there are those who i think struggle with that and think that we, we we can't pray with any uncertainty but but praying that god would raise me up from an illness was is pouring out my heart and will to god and but it is not saying that well lord i if you don't then i haven't believed hard that stuff that this is the whole point I and mean, that's kind of what's going on there so I thought that was interesting to think through, as obviously there were, in the commentators, there were those who, uh, were, uh, dealt with that as well. Anyway, that brings us to chapter 11. Uh, and from here on, uh, we, a dark shadow is cast on David and his life, right? Nothing is the same. Up until this point, everything David touches pretty much turns to gold. And from this point onward, although he's gonna have some victories, in some good things, uh,
1: it, it
0: all just kind of starts to collapse in a lot of ways, and it be, is because of the sin with Bathsheba, and that's pretty obvious as you go through this. He falls into sin, and he suffers uh, at the hands of his, of, of his family, of his ungodly children. Uh, it is his family that are really the source of all his problems from here on. But the lessons that we learn from this are extremely important. Certainly, it is to be approached very soberly, that is this this, uh, text, as we see what sin can do to our life, We are Christians. We are saved in Christ. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can remove our eternal life and our reward in heaven. But that's not to say that, of course, that we can... New things in this life that will have lifelong consequences. And those are two different things. And so it's it's good for us to remember that that we can very quickly ruin our lives. It is something that young people, especially perhaps have although I don't know I don't want to de-emphasize older people it can happen to us as well. But how many young people have changed the direction of our life or, or the just the whole uh Things, way things were going to go because of youthful lust and sin early on. And so, these are things that are very important. These are the things we need to make sure our children understand very well. In verse 1, we read that David was not fighting. David had, was not doing what kings should be doing. And I think rightly so. The commentators say this is recorded in a way that lets us know that David was not doing his duty. Something was wrong. And uh, he's letting others do what he should be doing. His guard was down, and he's unprepared for what follows. Um it, You know, what, even verse two, he is uh in, in the middle of the day, I'd right, say, for, or the afternoon, he's, he's laying in his couch. I it's not telling us that we can't take a nap or something like that, I hope not. But, you know, it, it, just the way it's recorded, he's not fighting, he's not alert, mm-hmm. he's he's being lax in his life, and I think that's the point here. Fighting the Lord's battles and concerned with His glory is an excellent way to fight temptations, to be wary, to be fighting, to be to understand. Is, is what the Bible tells us that we are at war. Mm-hmm. Centering your life around Christian activities will remove us from many wicked influences right outside the gate. Now, that's not gonna, that's not gonna deliver us or, or to remove us completely from temptation, but again, think about what what's going on here with David. Had he been serving the Lord as he should be, this problem would not have been a problem. He would have missed this problem entirely, right? And so, do your duty. You know, the old saying, idle hands is a devil's workshop. And, and, and there's a reason why that's the same. It's true. It doesn't mean that you know we we gotta always be busy, and you know, or you know, always reading the Bible or you know, studying or something like that. But it's the general principle that we need to think about. Jesus told Satan not to tempt God. Right when Satan was tempting him, <clears throat> when Satan, in, in in that particular time, was when Satan told him to jump off the pinnacle. Because God has saved you, because he said he would. Jesus says, you're trying to get me to tempt God. And what he's saying there is, I will not deliberately put myself in harm's way, so that the Father has to yank me out of the problem. And so when we are deliberately being idle, when we are deliberately being lax, we're not focusing on Christ. And we don't we don't get up in the day realizing what our duty is. We are deliberately putting ourselves in, in a situation where uh we're we're, we're making the God's got to keep me uh, take care of me because I'm not going to do it myself. I, I'm, I'm going to kind of short my own duty. So, not working in that sense, in the spiritual sense, it, it brings idleness. And of course, the proverbs. Bring up some of these things. Notice here, in Proverbs 24, I passed by the field of a slugger, by the vineyard of a man lacking sin. So, he's not just a slugger, but to be a slugger, to not get up in the morning and plow his fields and do his duty and take care of himself is going to uh, bring ruin upon him. So, it, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? He's being a fool. <laughs> and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. What do you expect? The ground was covered with nettles, and stone the wall was broken down. So it, it's because of the activity of keeping one's life ordered. But not just your yard, your life. Who you are. You, the place that God has put you. I'm keeping my life ordered. This man wasn't doing that. Then I saw and considered it. So, okay, let me, what, what's going on here? To what we're doing with David right now, right? His life is not ordered. He's, he's, he's become a sluggard in, in a sense here. And I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And walk like an army will. And so again, my, my point is not so much in the physical realm, although obviously there's there's an aspect of that that's Physical. But especially when it comes to our spiritual life, to our mind, to our wants, to our desires, to how we think—that all these things are things that we are to guard, to take care of. And so it's not hard to see that the writer really wasn't concerned with Bathsheba's guilt in this matter. It is David's sin that we are studying, and that's always been one of the big debates in this passage: was Bathsheba guilty? Or was she just an innocent victim? I find it very difficult to say she's an innocent victim. Uh, say, well, David was king. She had no choice in that. That's uh, nonsense. I don't think David would have raped anybody. Uh, she uh, had every opportunity to at least protest. There's no account that she protests. So it, it seems that there's a complacency here. I'll see another reason in just a moment. But the, the, the writers, this is about David. And that's what we want to be concerned about here. We could though, if we wanted to change directions, say, uh, women, this is, uh, an obvious thing that she did here with an obvious, uh, temptation to David, so there's some things to learn there, right? But we'll leave that for the time being. We're not told what Uriah was thinking, what Joab was thinking, uh, later on, even though he knew some things were afoot, attempts have been made to exonerate her and so forth, but there is some irony here though, also, in that, what does it tell us here, as if, during, after the deed, we lay with her in parentheses, now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Well, I, there are two different, uh, views of what that means. Some say that, uh, when she was bathing, she uh, it was, uh, it was a ceremonial bathing. Under the law, uh, doubtful could be though an argument. Uh, uh, the other uh, view, which I think is maybe uh, another one to think about, is that uh, she what in some way afterwards had, was had purified herself. Some say that she was waiting till uh, sundown before she left uh, because at sundown she would be ceremonially pure. So uh, that certainly makes sense as well. But the point is, why is it there? And I think it's to say that while all this is going on, they're still pretending to some degree to be uh, obeying the law and they're they're taking steps to purify themselves, even as they are being very impure, right? There seems to be some irony going on there. That's, That's just reminding us as Christians that All these things can be, we can be going to church, we can be uh, faithful to our church, taking the Lord's table, we can can baptize, everything we should be doing, but that doesn't save us from sin. So, those are beings of grace, and they're helpful, but you can still be a tremendous hypocrite even while you're doing all those kind of things. So, I think that, again, that's there for a reason. Well, about some further lessons here. Let's just kind of go through some of these. I think most are pretty obvious, but things that again are good for us to consider and to have our children consider. No one, however chosen, blessed and used of God, is immune to an extramarital affair or any kind of uh, activity like this. Doesn't matter, Christian or not. Anyone, regardless of how many victories he has won, can fall disastrously. That's David. David has been such an example of a godly man up to this point, and then, boom, he falls on his face. The act of infidelity is a result of uncontrolled desires, thoughts, and fantasy. Uh, this is an important one because it reminds us that the, nobody can say that well, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. David had made a lot of bad decisions to get him to that place. Nobody commits adultery. Spontaneously. Uh, that might be something that I can argue at that point, but I'll argue back. You have put yourself through a series of foolish thoughts and mistakes into a situation where it is possible. You didn't just all of a sudden find yourself doing this. You put yourself, you made decisions to get you to that point. And so. Uh, Again, that kind of goes back to what we were saying before about your life being in order. Being in order, that you think now, if I am find myself alone with this person, uh, you know, if, what's the ramifications? Is this healthy? Is this good? Is there a better way to do this? Right? Think things through. I mean, how many people have fallen because they have allowed themselves to go close to somebody who is not their spouse? We weren't married or whatever. And, uh, and then this is what happened. Because you, you did not, you, you thought that you could do uh, better than everybody else. I mean. Another thing is your body is your servant or it becomes your master, right? That's what we see here. A Christian who, who follows will excuse, rationalize, and conceal the same as anybody else. Now, again, I'm not calling David a New Testament Christian. He's a believer. But again, as we think about ourselves, um, we see David, his, his reaction to all this, is complete denial and to rationalize and to uh, do everything he can to conceal his sin, including murder. And so, one thing we learn from that is that you you really can't be surprised at what even Christians do. And believe I've been around long enough. Then to be enjoyable, but it can never be successfully covered. That's a huge important lesson that we must remember. But again, when we remember these things before we do stuff, we'll be so much better off. You're not going to get away with it. Because God sees it. I mean, God's there. In reality, one night of passion can spark years of family pain and Again, we see it here, but that goes without saying in these situations. But the positive the, the awesome thing to learn from this, or, or the you know, more pleasant thing to learn, failure is neither fatal nor final, even if there are dire consequences. You might sin in such a way that you lose your marriage or your family, is never. Been. Same again, or whatever the consequences might be, but that doesn't mean that he, that, that all hope is God because you are a child of God. If you are a child of God, there can be forgiveness. You can find forgiveness in the Lord, and you know that you shall uh, you can still serve Him in your situation uh, and, and so forth. And of course, will be a forever. So there's never a reason for a Christian to lose hope. You commit suicide to fall into a debilitating, permanent depression because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I can be forgiven. Again, not, not in the sense of salvation, but that sin, I can find peace with God and while I might have to suffer some of its consequences, I'm right with God, my conscience is clear, and I can move on as much it's possible. So those are just huge and wonderful things to think about as Christians. Well, of course, when David finds out, that Bathsheba sends him word that she's pregnant. David finds out, so his first thought is, "Well," and you know, makes perfect sense. I'll bring Uriah back from the front, let him uh, spend some time with his wife. Obviously, he's going to sleep with her, and boom, problem solved except the one bright spot in all this is Uriah, right? all right. This man just doesn't do anything wrong. It, it, his attitude is right. He's that one bright spot in all this. And he says, I will not uh, enjoy myself with my wife while my uh, comrades are fighting. So that plan fails So what does David do? Well, he uh, tells Joab who send Uriah to the front of the battle. They are trying to attack a city. He has to deliberately draw back and leave Uriah exposed and killed. And so that's I mean, murder, and Joab is complicit in that as well. But we'll get into more of that next week. Um, just some final thoughts. So we think about what this tells us about temptation and sin. James... One says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. But God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is Lord and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived in birth to sin, and sin when it is fully growing brings forth death. Because yeah. so we see something about how sin works and all this. So and again, I don't think that this is new, but we need to be reminded now and then. David sees something that arouses desire in him. James tells us that when this desire or lust conceives, or when we allow it to determine our thinking and actions, that's when we sin. And so there's a sense to which we can say David is sinning because he's not what he should be. That's one thing. But David sees something that, that, that the, the sight wasn't sin. It is what he did with that, right? That becomes sin. Temptation isn't sin. Having the capacity to fall into, into sin is not sin. The Father, you remember, placed Jesus into temptation. Not that he would sin, as, as James just tells us. We know that Jesus uh, was tempted so that he could shine forth as gold, so that he could prove himself to be the Son of God. So it's between verses 2 and 3 that David loses the battle. David Sees something. But in verse 3. David sinned and inquired. So he sees something. That could be a problem. But instead of saying nope. That's off limits. You know. You know that's just not going to happen. He thinks about it being a legitimate option. He inquires. He, he talks to someone about it. So that's the problem. That's where he, he, he falls into sin. Considers doing wrong a possibility. But at the start, from the start, it should, it should have been disregarded as an option. In Romans 6, 11, see down here. <clears throat> so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Had he considered himself dead to that which is dishonoring to God and alive to all those things that honor of God, then he would not have sent for someone to find out who she is because already he's considering the, the option, the possibility here. What else should we, he should have been considering besides the Lord's honor? Again, so the first box is always what honors the Lord, right? But again, part of the, the, the way we guard ourselves here is to think through what the, the problems. is. Um, what about his own honor? What about the fact that had he been caught in this, it would have brought shame upon himself? What about Bathsheba's honor? What, what about what you are doing to somebody else and putting them through and their family through, right? <clears throat> uh, what about, the, uh, the fact that you're gonna have to live with a guilty conscience? What about his legitimate wife? Well, this gets a little weird because in our mind, hard to think this way. but so let's just think about, you know, let's just say he had one wife. Well, he wasn't thinking about her and her feelings, right? He was thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about his relationship with his wife. Hmm. His desires are more important than his wife. What about a possible child? You're in a child into a set situation. So, pretty soon you begin to mag- see the magnitude of sin, uh, and it's, it takes spiritual maturity to be able to stop and say, wait just a minute, what are the ramifications? And the ramifications are always myriad. But you got to stop and think about it. If you, if you act by impulse, you're, you're ruined. But we're not animals. God gave us a brain and reason to think these things through. And I think these principles hold true for everyone in every situation, not just this particular sin. There's no more right for a safe person to entertain thoughts of uh you know marrying an unsafe person. Why do we entertain the thoughts or the possibility of when we know something is wrong? Again, not that the thought passed by mind. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the thought uh being dwelt upon. Let's feed upon this thought for a little bit. Even though I know it's not a legitimate thought. How often do I hear of someone falling into some trouble? And it's so obvious that they had to go through a series of, un, of sinful and unhealthy, foolish decisions to ever get to that point to start with. You, sometimes you hear about them you think, of, wow, how did they ever get there to start with? Going back to what we said before, had they just been doing the right thing, they would have never been there to start with or been in that situation, right? <laughs> It was the sin of thinking in an ungodly fashion that was not dealt with long before the overt act ever happened. So putting on the mind of Christ is a way to keep ourselves pure. But in this world, we can always trace back these types of failures long before we get ourselves into real trouble. Well, alright, we're running late. I wasn't, I wasn't surprised we didn't get through all that. Of course we started late too. But anyway, we'll, we'll kind of finish that up. Next week, any uh, questions or comments? Uh, So, we're all uh, gathered once again together. We pray for those who are not here and their needs. We pray uh, that we would have good service to follow, that your spirit might work in our hearts and minds. uh, Help us, Lord, as we seek to be performed here in Jesus' name.